afternoon again. Um, if you have a Bible or maybe a way to get it up on your phone, it probably be, would be worth turning to Acts 13. Uh, I've printed part of that chapter in the bulletin, and that's the part I'm going to read at the beginning of the sermon, but I'm really trying to talk about the whole chapter. And so, like during the lulls in the sermon, you could just go read the parts I didn't read or something like that. Uh, you'll catch right up. Um, I'm going to be preaching a sermon against religion, I think, which feels a little bit weird for somebody who's trying to drum up member, uh, new members and having a new member class and is leading a liturgical worship service in a formal church like this. Um, but I'm not totally against religion. I just think that a lot of times religion functions for people in their lives like a methadone clinic does. Um, it, it gives you just enough uh, support in your life to make you feel like you can make it on your own. And, um, you know, if you're just strung out and addicted to heroin, uh, then you're pretty despairing and looking for help. Methadone gives you a chance to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It gives you hope that maybe given some time you could get your act together and fix things. And I think religion does the same thing for us, too. The existence of religions in the world is at least an admission that something's wrong with us and we need some kind of help. But most religions' help is to give us uh, moral instruction or inspiration uh, or uh, exhortation, encouragement to do and be better. And the problem is that none of those things can fix what's wrong with us. Uh, inspiration can't fix us. Moral instruction can't fix us. Coaching and exhortation can't fix what's wrong with us. Um, and it causes us, therefore, to deal very oddly with Jesus when we run into him. Because Jesus offers a completely different help to us than religion does. Uh, he offers to fix what's actually wrong with us, not by inspiring us or motivating us, but by coming to our rescue. Uh, we're fixed because of what he does for us instead of what he inspires us to do for him. And I don't know anything like that in the world besides the Christian good news with Jesus. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, since religion can't fix us, but Jesus can set us free. And we're going to look at this passage in Acts 13. It's the beginning of what's called the missionary journeys of Paul. Um, if you went to Sunday school, you'd know that. Or if you look in the back of your Bible and you see the maps, there are maps about his missionary journeys. Um, they go to Cyprus, the big island that's still called Cyprus, and then they go to Turkey to a city called Pisidian Antioch. And the geography doesn't matter that much to me, especially if you know as little as I do about the geography. But um, what matters is it's a very religious mission trip they go on. They, they spend almost all their time, even through the end of this chapter, at synagogues. They go to... Uh, Jewish places of worship. They're Jewish converts themselves to Christianity. And uh, so they spend almost all their time talking to religious people. And so when they describe the good news about Jesus, they describe it in terms that religious people would understand. When Paul goes and starts talking to people who are less familiar later, he talks, he puts it in a very different idiom to explain it well to them. To these people, he talks with a lot of religious jargon and expects them to know a lot about the Bible already. So anyway, with that in mind, let's... let's uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please help us as we think about um, this passage of scripture. Uh, 
Just that we're here means that most of us are probably fairly religious and prone to all the difficulties that people have because of religion and their life with you. And so would you please help us come and open our eyes, uh, soften our hearts to you so that we might hear you speak and be drawn into a close relationship with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me. We're going to starting at verse 26 and go through 41. So. It says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, meaning Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it's written in the second psalm, you're my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He spoke in this way. I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says also in another place, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you had a chance to see The Good Place? It's a show Netflix has done about the afterlife. And there are four sort of hapless people who wind up after dying, fairly young, all of them, in the afterlife. And um, it turns out that they have gone to the bad place rather than the good place. Right, I'm going to spoil some of this, but not much. So um, as it turns out, they find out in the afterlife that there's a point system in life. And if you uh, do really good things, uh, points accrue positively to your account. If you do bad things, points uh, are taken away from you. And then at the end of your life, the points are added up to see if you qualify for the good place or the bad place. And so these four are pretty, uh, pretty messed up folks generally and are trying to figure out what to do since their point totals didn't add up. They're trying to think, is there a way... In the afterlife, maybe that we could adjust our point total by doing some kind of compensatory good things. Um, or if we were to educate ourselves morally, you know, could we become good in a way that would qualify us to transfer from the bad place to the good place? Ask. And then uh, later, a couple seasons in, uh, they start asking, what about a mulligan? You know, what if we could go back and not die when we uh, actually died? And see if maybe, given some time, we'd do better and that we might round into form eventually and that maybe our point total would come up, right? And uh, eventually they find out that 
None of their schemes work, of course, right? They still are who they are. And they find out that no one for 500 years has made it to the good place, that nobody's point totals are good enough, that if there's a point system, they're all doomed by it. No one is good enough. It's a very Calvinistic show. You know, you should watch it. It says that there's something broken in us so fundamentally that nobody's free of it. And that nobody, even those who are very religious or those who are very uh, altruistic in their lives, who try to be selfless in things, even those people don't have enough points to get into the good place. So um, if there's a point system, that's a recipe for despair. Because none of us, no matter how good we are, uh, balances out our good works against our bad works well enough to be received by God. Point system is only bad news for us. The problem is that almost everybody, especially religious people, live by a point system. They assume in their thinking about God and what he must think of them that there's a point system. And I think this includes most Christians, that functionally we live day to day as if there were a point system. And that if we think our point level is high, a certain day we expect to be better treated by God. And if our point level is low, one day we expect to be poorly treated by God. Or maybe you get into a low-grade place as your life goes on and that says, my point total is always pretty much an embarrassment to me. And I'm going to lay low and hope God doesn't pay very close attention to me and doesn't notice me. And hopefully I'll be okay. Um, I don't want his scrutiny. I don't want to be close to him because I know I am not winning the points race with God. And most every religious person uh, comes to that place. Jesus' message and what he said we should do with this deep problem that we have of being broken this way is very different. It's radically different from a point system. He says instead of focusing on what you do to make yourself acceptable to God, you need to focus on what he's done to rescue you. What he's done for you, not what you've done for him. God's grace instead of your achievement. It's uh, less is Kanye sincere and orthodox and sane, and more, what has Jesus done for Kanye? So those of you who are playing Sermon Bingo, there's your Kanye reference. Um, it's obligatory for middle-aged white ministers to make Kanye references sometime this month. Um, here's the thing. Jesus' message is remarkably different. He sets us free from the things that religion cannot set us free from. And even though Christians are religious, um, it's a whole different approach to a relationship with God than a religious one. So let's look at this uh, as we think about what Paul said to these people who were synagogue-goers, orthodox, devout, minority culture people who were going to synagogue every week, uh, in a place where it wasn't cool and it didn't help them in business and it wasn't expected of them. It was a minority belief, a minority way of life, living kosher. You know, the people that walk by my house every Saturday on the way to synagogue realize that they're standing out and they're different every day. And these people were like that. And uh, so they're, they're good religious people going to church, going to synagogue, and this is what they run into. So do you know why Paul and Barnabas went to synagogues first? Uh, whenever they'd go, even when they're going to places that were very new to Christianity, 
I'm not sure I know all the reasons. One is probably just familiarity. I mean, it's a Jewish religion, after all, right? This is, this is a culmination of Judaism, not a different religion from Judaism. Uh, this is true Judaism, the New Testament says. So they would start with uh, the synagogues, the people there, maybe familiarity with the, the God of Israel, with monotheism, with uh, revealed the scriptures, Knowing what's in the scriptures, all that gives you some ground to work with as you're talking. Maybe this is low-hanging fruit. I also think, as somebody who's a church planter, I think they were also looking for some people who uh, were pretty steeped in their Bible knowledge to be able to be leaders in the early church. Because a lot of times the missionaries didn't stay very long, and they had to leave people to lead the church. And uh, the Jews at least had a leg up in familiarity with uh, the Old Testament. When they're there. So I'm not sure all the reasons, but they did always go to the synagogues first. They were Jews themselves, you know. And I guess Paul dressed like a rabbi because when he was there at the church, they asked him if he wanted to speak, which they probably regretted afterwards. I would never do that <laughs> unless I knew what they were going to say. But they asked him to speak, and boy, did he speak. So, and you can tell at the end of his sermon, though, he says, I hope what happens to you is not what the prophet said where they said that you won't believe this even if you hear it. And he kind of suspected and expected that they wouldn't believe him. And I think he thought, you know, this is just always really hard for religious people. Uh, to be humbled in the way this humbles you, to be dependent on God the way this makes you dependent instead of able to achieve on your own. And he was pretty doubtful that they were going to respond. A lot of them did, as it turns out, but he was skeptical if they would. And he doesn't go and say to him. I see through you, you bunch of posers, you're, you're insincere, and you've got these secret lives. I know what you're really doing. You come in here, you play holy on, on Sabbath and all things, but I know who you really are, you bunch of liars. And you're stupid people, too. You should have understood the Bible better, but you don't. He doesn't say those things. He, he takes for granted that they're sincere and that they're devout in uh, their worship of God, right? which is very interesting because then... The whole point of his sermon is, we all know the story about what God's done through the Old Testament, but you've misconstrued the big picture of what was going on. In the part before, uh, in chapter 13, before what we read, he goes through a brief history of what had happened with Israel, what God had done with them. He just kind of tells the high points of the story that they all would have known, but he tells it in the context of it all pointing to Jesus instead of just uh, the way they've understood it in the past. So he talks about Moses and the Exodus, but he says, but then for 40 years, God had to put up with the people in the wilderness for 40 years. It's, uh, it wasn't like he rescued the champion good people and uh, got them to be his followers because of the best ones. They were lousy. And he talks about after that, the time of the judges, after they got in the Holy Land and the judges, judges is crazy. You ever read the book of the judges? You know, you just, every chapter you're thinking, are they supposed to be doing that or not? I mean, this is, who are the good guys in Judges? It's hard to tell, you know. And uh, because the religion of Israel and the law of Moses that they were following was never curative. It was never going to fix them. It was never meant to fix them. Then he talks about, they got a king, Saul, who was a disaster. And then David, who was a great king. Except you're thinking, David, <laughs> I mean... He's a good, as good a king as they had, but my goodness, we all know David's uh, sins, 
right? He was not a great person in the pinnacle of human uh, holiness or anything like that. Then they all knew about John the Baptist who'd come and preached. And, but they'd all kind of construed John the Baptist's message uh, as, hey, look, quit being slackers. You need to bear down. You need to, you need to try harder to do better. Missing John's message that said, look, uh, there's one who's coming after me who's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And uh, so then he says, look, this is what your story is, is all about. Your whole story is anticipatory of Jesus. Uh, it, all the law shows you that you're broken, that if it was a point system, you'd be doomed, but that you need to be rescued because you can't fix yourself. And Jesus has come to do that. That he's come and lived the life you should have lived and never could. That he's died the death that you deserve to die, uh, but don't have to now because he has. And he's the one who reconciles you to God. He's the one who takes away the point system and grants you forgiveness and love and acceptance and welcome from God. As a gift, not as something that you can produce or ever deserve. So, um, that's a problem, though. Because we're just wired to think in terms of points. And uh, you try to live your life with God in terms of points, and it's always going to be vexing to you. It's never going to work out well. You'll never be secure. You'll never be assured. You're never going to feel like you're in a good enough place to be okay. And if you turn Christianity into a point system, which a lot of people do, which most of us do most days, honestly, and think that God's dealing with us based on how devout we are, or how uh, sincere we are, or how observant we are in our spiritual exercises and things like that, then you turn Christianity into a different religion. And you make it just like any other religion. It's just a means of trying to be good and get better. And that's never what it was. Advertisement here for book clubs. Not this week, but next week. We're reading The Great Divorce. And C.S. Lewis does better explaining this than anybody I know. And that book is wonderful and short, if I have to say that to you, here in this uh, academic community. Um, Well worth your read. So read The Great Divorce. But the big point that Jesus came, the thing that people just couldn't get their heads around and couldn't accept when they did was that Jesus did not come to help sick people. He came to raise dead people. And most of us in our most humble moments will admit to being sick, but very few of us will admit to being dead and helpless morally, and helpless spiritually. And that's what Jesus said is true of us. We just don't think we're dead. Uh, we may be addicted, but a little methadone ought to be all we need to square things away. A little religion, a little boost. And when religious people come into contact with Jesus, they're attracted to him until he becomes threatening and says that their religion uh, won't fix them. And usually what happens then is people change Jesus, domesticate him. And they say things like, well, I think mostly that Jesus was like a teacher of peace. That he taught about nonviolence, that he was a very insightful rabbi. He was kind of like a Jewish Gandhi, and that's cool, right? We can like Jesus if he's like that. And Christianity isn't all about this dying for our sins and us repenting and being forgiven and 
you know, having new life with God through what he did. It's more inspiration or coaching for us. Um, we make uh, Christianity more about self-congratulation, about, you know, how good it is that we're doing so much in the community to help the little people. Uh, or maybe we're uh, binding together as Christians to have an influence politically. And I think that's really what Jesus would have wanted us to do. Or, or maybe in some, maybe these are in California, uh, church just becomes a place to explore your own beautiful soul and think about how great you are. But any of these distortions of what Jesus said and came to do leaves us with a point system. It's, you know, it's Private Ryan Christianity. You remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? It's a preachers like this movie. Um, because when Tom Hanks and his, uh, his friends sacrificed themselves to rescue Private Ryan, uh, his dying exhortation to Ryan was what? Earn this. He said, earn this. And uh, the rest of his life, he's trying to live under this obligation. Have I been a good person? Have I been a good man? Have I earned what was done for me? And uh, this is never the message of Christianity. It's never the message of Christianity. It's what Jesus has earned for us, not what we earn for him. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's not that hard to understand that, but it's just super hard to believe it and accept it and feel it. That God really isn't dealing with me based on my performance. I mean, everybody deals with you on the basis of your performance. How are we supposed to get our heads around that, that Jesus doesn't deal with us on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of his performance? It's a remarkably strange kind of religion. So he's not just a teacher of peace and an insightful rabbi. He's a savior, uh, Paul says in his sermon. He's come to your rescue. He's come by dying and ri rising again from the dead is how he's come to your rescue. Paul doesn't say... You know, I love that story about the Good Samaritan. It just inspires me to be nice to people who are poor and sick. I mean, that was not his message. It was Jesus rose from the dead. Um, we killed him. And, but this is our only hope. This is what our whole life and story has been pointing to. So which side are you on? Are you going to throw yourself on his mercy? Or are you going to try to stick with a point system? And that was his sermon, pretty much. Right? That's what he says. Grace, not points, was his message. You can be freed from all the things that the law couldn't free you in Jesus. We've read that twice already today. Um, freed is actually the technical word justified. You know, that's one of Paul's favorite words. Here they translate it freed because they're trying to use it in the broadest sense. That you can be forgiven of your sins, but also freed from the whole idea of dealing with God on the basis of a point system. You know, because if you're if you're always trying to be good enough for God, if you're trying to make up for your sins, if you're hoping God will like you because you've been good enough or devout enough, you're always going to be insecure. You're always going to be oversensitive to criticism, anxious all the time. If this is some meritocracy with God and you're trying to make sure that your GPA is high enough or your resume is good enough. Angry. If things go wrong, even though you've been trying really hard, exhausted because you're never You've never done enough and joyless because how much joy is there in a point system? I mean, a point system's impersonal. It's like God doesn't know you or care about you or love you. And 
All this is never enough. That Jesus, I'll free you from that so that you don't have to be anxious about God all the time. That you can actually be in a relationship with him that gives you joy. That you can actually look at obedience as something not that you have to do to discipline yourself to make sure you're doing the right thing so maybe God will bless you. But because you like him and you believe he loves you and you like what pleases him. All the anger about how he's treated you goes away. You say, I've been treated better than I ever could. I don't know what he's doing all the time in my life, but I know he's for me. I'm not scared of that anymore. So it frees you from these things. And in your relationship with other people, he frees you. Because, you know, usually people who are on a point system are pretty smug. Even they may be insecure about themselves, but they're not. They're under no illusions about you. (laughs) Judgmental, religious people, that never happens, does it? That happens because we're on a point system. If you're under the mercy of Jesus, and your standing with God comes because the Holy Son of God had pity on you, and rescued you, well, that kind of undermines condescension, doesn't it? Like, what are you looking down on now? If you were, if you were such that the Holy Son of God had to die for you before you could be right with God, who are you looking down on? And uh, points religion makes you smug and judgmental. Grace religion undermines that, sets you free from it. You're already loved, already accepted. You can't lose God's love for you. If you pray a lot and read your Bible a lot tomorrow, he won't love you more. If you don't pray or read your Bible tomorrow, he won't love you less. And uh, that sounds scary, quasi-heretical to say, but it's the truth. Uh, Your standing with him depends on what Jesus has done, not what you have done. just turns out that's the secret to praying and reading the Bible more. It's actually feeling that freedom. So you're not on probation. You can't lose his love. You've been given more than a second chance. You've been given new life that you can never lose. It's a grace religion. It's not a point religion. Brett Favre was uh, going in the Hall of Fame as an NFL quarterback. He'd done very well. And he told a story about his father, Irv, who had been very influential in his life. And he said at one point, when he was playing badly as a teenager, he heard his dad say to the coach, he said... "Um, I promise that my son will perform better in the future. I know he has it in him. And Favre said, I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. And I hope I've succeeded. You know what the people did at Canton, Ohio, when he said that? Right. That's great. Because that's points religion and we love, love, love it. (laughs) I've spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. He said, I knew I had it in me, so I aspired. That's the American story. That's the religion story. That is not Jesus' story. If you're on a point system, if you're spending your career trying to redeem yourself, you're doomed. Good place is very accurate theologically on that point. If there's a point system, we're all doomed. We're all doomed. But the good news of Jesus is that the points don't matter. The points don't matter. Everyone who trusts in the grace of Jesus will be set free. Now let's pray.